Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. I wanted to start with. So, if you don't know me, my name is Phil, and I'm going to tell you something about myself, because I quite enjoy DIY. Um, even when it is stressing me out, I'm actually still enjoying it. Um, even when the other person who is supposed to be helping me disappears at a critical moment, I am still enjoying it. Um, but it may not look like it or sound like it at that particular moment. Um, but there is satisfaction, isn't there, in getting a job done. And if you come to my house, you might think, well, no, Phil, I don't think you do enjoy DIY. <laughs> because this is not straight, as per the music stand. Or this is not finished. Or this is a bit messy. Um, If you enjoyed DIY, Phil, that wall in your lounge where a new window was fitted four years ago uh, would have been decorated by now. You see, my problem is that the good or the okay uh, tends to be the enemy of the best. I do something and I think that's okay, but really it isn't. I settle for something that really should be a whole lot better than it is. I think that sometimes we all do that. I think we all have that in parts of our lives, in different areas of our lives. And the story that we're going to read this morning has a little bit of that in it, something that's not quite what it could have been. And so we've been working our way through, walking our way through uh, the opening chapters of Genesis. And so I'm going to conclude that this morning. And we're going to read from Genesis chapter 4. I'm going to read this story to you. It starts at verse 1, goes through to verse 16. And like, not magic, but just technology, uh, it's going to appear there behind me. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. Eve was the first woman to conceive a child, be pregnant and give birth. Wow. Uh, Amazing. Um, She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now, Abel kept flocks and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions of some of the firstborn of his flock. Sounds good. The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. And the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you. You must rule over it. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? I don't know, he replied. Am I my brother's keeper? The Lord said, what have you done? Sound like a parent and a child for a moment there? Listen, 
Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Now you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. When I was a child, the land of Nod was where you went to sleep. Is that true for anybody else? In the course of preparing to teach on this passage, uh, a number of things were going on in my life and they were going on in our life together here as a group in the Heatons and I think also within CCM as a whole. And then I spoke to people in other places and other settings and I heard similar reflections of what the Holy Spirit was saying and doing. And as I read this passage and I thought about the title that had been given to it, I'll be honest with you, I found it quite hard to match that to the kind of wider picture of what God is doing in this season. And what God is doing has been pressing on me. Let me tell you what I think God is doing in this season. We are at the start of an awakening. A new day is dawning on the church. You know, when you look through history, what you see is that there are moments, both large and small, when the, there is a change in the atmosphere of the church as a whole. You know, on the day of Pentecost, the atmosphere among the disciples in that upper room, it shifted from fear and uncertainty to boldness and joy. If you fast forward through history to the 18th century, people like Wesley and Whitfield and others, they administered the gospel in such a way as that thousands and thousands of believers and unbelievers encountered God afresh or for the first time the atmosphere of nations was changed in the 1960s and 1970s the so-called house church movement stream it found an expression of gathering together free from institutional structures and released many into a new kind of relationship with the holy spirit you see the atmosphere of the church was shifted in the mid-1990s the holy spirit came in extraordinary power across the world and lives including my own were changed forever by an awakening to the fundamental necessity of God's presence in our lives day by day. Our choice will be to embrace a new move of God or to let it pass by, but whatever happens, it will mean change. Now, an awakening does not change the purpose of the church, but it is going to change the practice of the church. For example, an early disciple of Jesus, a man called Peter, he said this in Acts 3.19, he said, Repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. When Peter spoke those words, he was addressing a crowd who had just witnessed a miracle. The very people who had turned their backs on Jesus and allowed him to die unjustly. Have you? maybe unwittingly, turned your back on Jesus? 
Are you more consumed with your job or your kids or your home or your social media stream, Netflix, politics, getting your next fix than you are with Jesus? Have you, maybe, maybe what I want to say to you is that there is much the Holy Spirit wishes to refresh among us. And even this morning, I, I, I'm going to primarily address one huge area in our lives, which is the worship that we give to Jesus through how we live. What I want us to see in the coming minutes is that the way that the father dealt with Cain and the foundation he laid in Abel just illustrates his ultimate intent for you and I. Let's pray for a moment because I want him to do that. Lord Jesus, I thank you that you are building a never-ending kingdom and you're doing that through us, your people. Thank you, Jesus, that you have repeatedly, repeatedly come and ministered to your people. You've come and met with your people. You have equipped us. You have enabled us. You've released faith to us. You've, uh, Lord Jesus, worked grace in our lives. I want to trust you this morning, Jesus, and over these coming days, weeks and months, as we look into the future with great expectation of who you are and what you can do, Jesus, we lay ourselves, we set ourselves before you, ready for you, Jesus. Amen. When I started looking at these verses here in, in Genesis, there was really, for me, a, a standout moment. In verses 4 and 5, it says this, The Lord looked with favour on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favour. Why does God look on Abel's offering with favour, but Cain's did not receive favour? What has Cain done to deserve what appears to be such arbitrary treatment from God. Does, he just, does God just look down and say, well, I fancy lamb today, but I'm not so keen on butternut squash. Is God's treatment of Cain arbitrary? Do you ever feel like your father in heaven is treating you in an arbitrary fashion, just kind of whimsically flitting between what he is happy with or what has not pleased him on that particular day? Do you feel like your prayers, your requests, your needs, even your worship, it's not really accepted? You know, I think there are people in this room right now who feel like when they come to God, they're not accepted. They're not good enough. There's no favour for them. Maybe even sometimes you come here on a Sunday morning and you try to worship the Father with gladness and with joy. But actually you go away a bit like Cain, a bit angry, a bit downcast. I've got news for you. There is an awakening coming. Even today, there is a new experience of meeting with and engaging with the Father that will change the way you see him and that you see yourself. So what is the difference? What is the difference between Cain and Abel? What was it that caused God, who is holy, and just. He's the one who loves all that he has made. What caused him to look with favour on Abel and not on Cain? Why would he choose to look with favour on you? The answer is in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4, straightforward answer. By faith, Abel brought, a, brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings and by faith Abel still speaks even though he is dead. That's all it is, folks. 
That is what makes all the difference to God. It's what he is interested in. It's what he wants to see. It's what he wants to hear. It's what he wants to reward faith. If you wonder, what is it that needs awakening? It's faith. If we were to read a little further into Genesis, we'd read about a man called Enoch. Now, he was the great, great, great grandson of Seth. Seth is Cain's brother. Now, Enoch didn't die. He was taken away. And if we read a little further into Hebrews chapter 11, we discover that this happened because he, that's Enoch, pleased God. Hebrews 11, verse 6, says what? It says, without... Thank you. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Here's my question for you. Whose sandals do you want to walk in? Do you want to walk in Abel's or Cain's? If you identify with that sense of not being accepted, that what you have to bring to God is not good enough, that there is no favour for you. For those who feel like they've been handed Cain's sandals, I want to tell you there is a way ahead. There is a way to switch from a feeling of rejection to a knowledge of acceptance. And Hebrews 11.6 makes this really, really simple for us. If you want to live in a way that is pleasing to God, if you want to be someone whose offerings are looked upon with favour, act in faith. Anything we do without faith does not please God. Let me be clear. This does not mean it is displeasing. That is sin. I am not talking about sin. What I am talking about is that which we do which will bring pleasure to the heart of the Father. It's that which results in favour. So, what is an action that is made from faith? How do we ensure that we are acting with faith rather than without it? What was it that was inside Abel at that moment? There is a man called John Piper. I'm going to quote him in a moment, but you will often hear John Piper quoted from this very spot. And I want to tell you why you hear him quoted. If you've never come across John Piper before, I'm going to tell you why. It's because John Piper is a man who is an unusual combination of being a great theologian and a great pastor at the same time. He gets God and he gets people. That's why you hear him being quoted so frequently. And he says this, what pleases God is that our hearts and our minds display God's being and God's beauty. That we display God's existence and his excellence. That we display how real he is. That we display how rewarding he is. This is what pleases God. This is faith. So here is the greatest goal that you could have in life. It is to display God's being and his beauty. The difference between Cain and Abel is faith. For Cain, a lack of faith ultimately led to being displaced from God's presence. He wasn't abandoned by God, but his proximity to God's presence was curtailed. For Abel, 
His faith meant he was commended as righteous and his actions continue to speak to us today. Cain shows us significance of faith by showing us what happens when it is not there. Abel, on the other hand, shows us what faith is like. There is something in Abel's example of what it is to display the being and beauty of God. And do you know what? If we can grasp it, then we've been awakened. One way of looking at it might be like this. You could walk to the Mercedes dealer. I always get my directions wrong when I'm standing in this room for some reason. But wherever that new Mercedes dealer is in Stockport, it must be about there-ish, I think. You went down there and uh, you walked into that dealership. And the the owner of the dealership could walk up to you and they could say, look, you're the 100,000th person to walk into this dealership. And so we're going to give you a brand new car with its heated leather seats, air conditioning, it's Apple CarPlay. Here are the keys. Congratulations. And excitedly, you get into the car and you find the stop-start button. You press that and you're waiting for the engine to purr its way into action. And then, bing, this big red light comes on. No fuel. You see, what we're talking about here is not the faith that brings us to salvation. We're talking about the faith that is the outworking of that salvation. It's the faith that expresses the salvation that we've already received. We're talking about the faith that fuels our action. It's that critical ingredient that makes the car go. We're talking about the kind of faith that instinctively defines the choices we make. I'll put it back in the words of Hebrews 11 again at the very start. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. Faith is an assurance and a conviction. I actually can do and be that that John Piper was talking about. That I actually am the display of God's existence and his excellence. Yes, even me. It's not something that I can generate through willpower or planning. It's part of my being. It is my reason for being. What I decide to to do with my body or my time or my money or my mind, how I conduct relationships, when those choices are motivated by an unmovable desire to display God's beauty, they will be great faith-filled choices that result in favour. In fact, and this is so critical, what it does is it makes those choices worship that is acceptable. Now an example of this would be, as Joe was talking about a minute ago, over the last couple of weeks, many of you, clearly from that £53,000 figure, which is astonishing, many of you will have made sacrifice to do that. And that giving is part of our worship. If we give with faith, that is showing the excellence of God. And as a result, it's received with favour. That's brilliant. But there's another side to that, isn't there? If we give out of duty or guilt or fear or anxiety, it doesn't result in favour. In fact, I want to say to you, if that was you, if you gave out of one of those motivations... Come and speak to me. 
and I'll ask for you to have your money back. Do you want to live in a way where you manifest, where you display the excellence, the existence and beauty of God purely by instinct? Not just a second nature, but your actual nature. Would you like for your hours of admin at work to be part of your worship? Would you like your nappy changing to be part of your worship? Would you like your grocery shopping to be part of your worship? People who have lots of nappies would love for it to be part of their worship. Would you like your hours of study to be part of your worship? The answer is yes. We must ask one vital question. Where does it come from? And this is my one huge point of application for us this morning, is that we, if we can grasp this, then I think that all of this expectation, all this understanding of what God can do for us, really finds traction. Where does this faith come from? And the Bible, being brilliant, answers the question straight down the line. Romans 10, verse 17, it says that faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. So what I'm trusting in the Holy Spirit for in this very moment is that there is a revelation being made to you right now. That the gospel of Jesus is itself a catalyst of faith. That's because that miraculous work of salvation through the cross, it's been completed, it's done. The word of Christ is now releasing faith in us. It's, it's filling that fuel tank. It's words of truth that will fill our hearts and our minds. Would you do that, Jesus, right now? Allow faith to rise because truth is planted and it grows up inside of us. You know, I'm talking about words like this at the end of that 11th chapter of Hebrews that we've been picking bits out of as we've gone along here. If we get to the end of that, verse 39 in Hebrews 11, it says this. These, he's talking about all of those famous characters in that chapter. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God. This is astonishing. <clears throat> when you think about the people who were listed there in Hebrews 11, this is the kind of company that we are being placed with. It says, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. Abel, expressed faith without the revelation of the gospel. He did it without Jesus. He did it without the sending of the Holy Spirit. Abraham, by faith. Moses, by faith. Rahab, by faith. Gideon, David. They all acted with faith and it was credited as righteousness, but they did not receive the promise, the inheritance that had been reserved for us. What is it that was held back? It was a new covenant. There was an agreement to come between God and his people that was to be founded on the blood of Jesus. You see, even the offering that Abel brought, although done with faith, it didn't deal with sin. That divided God from man. It didn't deal with that. <coughs> only the ultimate, excuse me, <coughs> only the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate offering can do that because it's the blood of Jesus, it says in 1 John, his son that purifies us from all sin. Abel's actions demonstrate that offerings brought with faith, the pursuit of God with faith, results in favour. So how much more then will the faith-filled pursuit of God by his chosen righteous children delight God and lead 
to reward because God had planned something better for us. God's better for us is that we would be recipients of a kingdom that endures forever. Skip on in Hebrews to chapter 12 and in verse 24 it says to Jesus. It's to Jesus. This is who we come to. We come to Jesus who is the mediator. That means he oversees, he administers the new covenant. It's to the sprinkled blood of him that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Forgive me if I don't do this well, but I am eager that it be clear here how Jesus's blood poured out for us speaks faith as compared to Abel's blood that spoke pain. God says to Cain, back in Genesis, verse 10 of chapter 4 in Genesis, God says this to Cain, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. Abel's blood offended God to such an extent that he removed Cain from his own presence. Can you just imagine for a moment the agony in the heart of God in this time? Adam and Eve have disobeyed and they've been banished from the garden. One of their children has just killed another one and then Cain lies to God. It's like Abel's blood at this moment becomes a kind of physical marker of the separation between the creator and the created. There's a, a situation has developed here where the father has been separated, removed from his children. They've been removed from one another. Those children then spend hundreds and hundreds of years trying to, trying to get their way back into God's presence. But there was only ever going to be one whose blood would be good enough. There would be one whose blood would speak a better word. There's one who would establish this new covenant, a new relationship, a better relationship. That's Jesus. And this is the word of Christ. I want you to receive it. Because if you can receive it, faith will increase. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 12 again. I'm going to read it to you from the message. It's a little easier to follow. It's speaking to us. Do you see what we've got? An unshakable kingdom and do you see how thankful we must be not only thankful but brimming with worship deeply reverent before God for God is not an indifferent bystander he's actively cleaning house he's torching all that needs to be burned and he won't quit until it's all cleansed God himself is fire we are inheriting a kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are inheriting victory over death. We are inheriting freedom from the grip of sin. We are inheriting unity over racial division. We are inheriting the power to minister healing. We are inheriting a message of hope for teenagers on the streets of our cities. We are inheriting good news for the poor and the marginalized. We are inheriting peace for migrants who are fleeing persecution. We're inheriting family for the lonely. If we will allow truth like this to release faith like Abel's, then we are worshipping in a manner that is acceptable and reverent. We are displaying the existence and the excellence of God. 
Let's not allow the good, the okay, the mediocre to accidentally replace the best. Our God is a consuming fire. He won't allow anything else through, just faith. We need that fire. Let's not be content with where we are and what we see. Let's see faith awaken because faith brings honour and glory and worship to God.